If you want this morning scripture, you can go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we'll start at verse number 1. I'm going to go a little bit out of order of my slides this morning, so as always, this thing is just a suggestion. If I ditch it, just, you'll be all right. I want to talk about this first. Dura Europus. In 240 to 245 A.D., that's about, uh, about a hundred, 200 and, about 210 years, 215 years after uh, the birth of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the church and the events that we see at the beginning of the New Testament in the, book of, uh, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and then the book of Acts, they had a house in an area in Syria that the Christians, the early Christians... Now, mind you, this is hundreds of years after the establishment of the church. And so uh, the church has spread pretty far and wide. At the end of the book of Acts, you see that the Christians are all the way to Rome. Uh, The book of Colossians says that it's been spread to the entire known world. And about 200 years later, there is a house in Syria at this city called Dura Europus that is converted into a church building. It had a lot of the same things that you would see in modern church buildings today. Now, ours isn't like that, but have you ever seen uh, an old building owned by the Churches of Christ that may have a mural painted behind the baptistry? Y'all have seen those, right? I was joking last week. The first place I preached in Wilson, Arkansas, the baptistry was under the pulpit. You have to move the whole thing out of the way to have a baptism. You have to lift the floor up. And when I found out where the baptistry was, I was kind of scared to go up there and preach. But it's, it, during Europa's, their church building was a lot like ours. It, it had a general meeting area. It had a room where the baptistry was. And on the walls of the room with the baptistry, there were paintings like Jesus healing the paralytic man, man or um, like the, the renditions of uh, the Twelve Apostles, and, and certain paintings that, that would remind them of certain things that they wanted to remember. It had, uh, in the general meeting area, a place that would be the place where the person who's leading worship would stand, kind of like what we have up here. And about 15 years after this house was converted into a church building, uh, it was destroyed by the community members because, well, they didn't like having a church there. And so they... They destroyed the building. And here's my question. After the Christians at Dura Europus, modern day Syria, after their building is destroyed, what do you think happened? You go to Tanzania, and in Tanzania, Wes can show you pictures of the church, uh, church building where the, the city, the, the government rather, was, was wanting to build a road, and the church building was a little too close to the road. So, instead of, you know, paying for the building or finding a new place for the road, the Christians show up one Sunday morning in their church building. Half of it has been destroyed, and where their auditorium used to be is now a brand new shiny road. They have to figure out what they're going to do. Now, here's my question. What did they do after their church building was destroyed? I hear stories of Malawi. I know a good friend of mine named Randy Judd, who is a missionary in Malawi, uh, Africa. And over there, they, they have a law that if you own the keys to the building, 
you own the building. There is no deed process in Malawi. There is no um, real legal system to speak of. And so if you own the keys to the building, it is your building. One day back in 2000, it was probably 2013, 2014, somewhere around in there, Randy was back home from Malawi and updating churches about the, the status of the mission work. And he mentioned to me that they were in need of a new building. And I said, why do you need a new building? Randy said, well, the Buddhists in Malawi are really militant. They're, they're not like normal Buddhists. They're, they're pretty militant against the church, and they stole the keys to the church building. And I thought, well, change the locks. He said, no, what you don't understand is if you own the keys to the building, you own the building. So now the Christians have to find a new building. So here's my question. What happens when these people all over the world, back in, in, in 2000, 2,000 years ago, 1,800 years ago, back in 245 to 250, somewhere around in there, A.D., after the, the church building at Dura Europus, that the Christians have painstakingly taken a house that someone gave them. Maybe it was a Christian who passed away, and the house meant something and had some, some sort of um, legacy to the congregation. They, they change it into a church building. They start using it. They spend 15 years there. They're worshiping faithfully, and then it's torn down. Or the church that is in T uh, Tanzania who shows up one Sunday morning, and the building's gone. What happens? Does the church just cease to exist there? They just, well, okay, and they just disband and then they go to their own homes and they never worship together again? No, of course not, right? I understand that. Let's look at some of the history of church buildings in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 says that the churches there in Corinth, at least one of them, heard, knew of a, of a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. You've probably heard of them before. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19, Paul says that Priscilla and Aquila greet the Christians there in Corinth and the church that is in their home greets them. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 15, I give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. Over and over again, we see that women, maybe they, were, maybe they were somewhat rich. We have women in the New Testament who have, for whatever reason we don't know, have taken it upon themselves to provide for their families, like Lydia in the book of Acts. And so Nympha apparently is one of these women who, who has some funds, and she has a house. Maybe it's her house. Maybe her husband is not a Christian, but he allows the church to meet in her house. Okay, Philippians chapter 2, sorry, Philemon chapter 2, verse number, uh, Philemon verse 2 says this, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So Philemon, this well-to-do Christian who is a slave owner, who has a slave runs, that runs away, Onesimus, and eventually Onesimus, Onesimus runs to Rome. Maybe because Onesimus is trying to flee the, the nation. Maybe he's trying to flee the empire. And the best way to get out of the area was to get to Rome so that you can get the trade routes. And maybe he could go into 
the modern day England area. Maybe he could go down into Africa. Where, we don't know where he's going, but somewhere along the way, he runs into a man named Paul. He hears the gospel, he's converted, and he tells Paul about his life story. Well, I used to be a slave and I ran away. And Paul says, well, what, what was the name of the slave owner? I, I spent some time in that area preaching the gospel. I probably know him or have heard of him before. And he says, well, his name's Philemon. Paul says, hey, wait, Onesimus, what you don't understand is between the time that you ran away and now, Philemon has also obeyed the gospel. And not only has he obeyed the gospel, he, you remember that Philemon is somewhat rich, right? He, he owned some slaves. He had a nice house. Not only has he obeyed the gospel, the church there is meeting in his own home. And so Paul writes a letter to Philemon that says, I'm sending Onesimus back. I want you to receive him as a brother, treat him as a brother. If you feel like he needs to pay you back for running away, then that's fine. But here's what I'm asking you. I'm asking you that you turn around and send him right back to me because I could use him in my evangelism, in my ministry. And so we have numerous people. The the, um, Aquila and Priscilla, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. Nympha, Colossians 4, Philemon. All of these people have churches that are meeting in their houses. Early Christians, for one reason or another, decided that it was best to meet in their house for worship services. But that's not the only place that they met. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Verse number 17. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for better but for the worse, in the first place. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat? And to drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Why did, why did I just read a passage about the Lord's Supper? Because in this section, he says, wait a second. You're coming together to take the Lord's Supper, but what you're doing is you're turning it into a meal that you could treat one another badly in. Don't you have houses that you could go and eat lunch at? The Lord's Supper is not lunch. It's not snack time. It's It's something that Christians do to remember the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But they're not meeting in houses in 1 Corinthians 11. Where were the Corinthians meeting? Well, maybe Acts chapter 5 and verse 42 records that the Christians would go into the temple and the synagogues and worship. Maybe they've taken uh, a, a synagogue. Maybe someone has allowed them to to come into the synagogue on Sunday and worship for one reason or another. Maybe they're doing it in the corner of the temple grounds. Maybe they're worshiping in a a park or something like that. So the Christians met in houses, but sometimes they met in public areas, whatever public area they could get to. And then about 200 years later, we see that the laws have changed to the point that now Christians are at least permitted to have some sort of building that is given to the worship 
of the church. Now, it only lasts 15 years, and the, the people in the area destroy the church building because they didn't like it. But just a few years later, about 100 years later, Constantine is going to legalize Christianity so that churches can now own buildings. That's why you see the, the huge ramp up of, of historical church buildings after the time of Constantine because he legalizes it. And now Christians are able to not only own buildings, not only own houses, but own places that are specifically given over to worship. And here's the thing, okay? We're doing a study on Ecclesiastes right now. Why am I talking about church buildings? Because over the last 1,700 years, church buildings have become the one thing that will keep Christians from working more than any other. I can prove it. Sure, there is sin in the world that takes over Christians' lives, Sure, there, is tempta- there are temptations that take over that maybe keep us from, from, maybe we're ashamed of our temptation and so we're not, going to, we're not going to evangelize because we're scared that someone may bring something. Well, you know, you say that I'm not worshiping correctly, but what about that one time that you blank? Yeah, those things happen. But in today's culture, the one thing that keeps Christians from actually Serving God is the thing that is supposed to be here for us to serve God in our church buildings. We come on Sundays, we sit down, we listen to Lee ramble for 30, 45 minutes, depending on how long he wants to ramble that day, and then we leave, and next week we'll come and do the exact same thing. We want our church buildings to be comfortable. Listen, I don't know about y'all, I like being comfortable, I like not sweating. But here's the thing, when y'all down there are nice and comfortable, it's boiling up here. I don't know if it's these lights, probably not. It's probably all the stairs that you give me. I don't know, but whatever it is, we like our church buildings to be comfortable. We like them to be clean. We like them to look nice. We have a beautiful building here with with vaulted ceilings that are... One reason why last year we didn't paint the auditorium is because no one wanted to paint that. Okay, We have this beautiful building. And it will keep us from serving God quicker than anything else will. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse number 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity, it was hevel. It 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 was like a fleeting wind, it was like a breath, it was unpredictable, it was... It was something that was, was going to take his mind away from God and eventually become idolatry. I said of laughter, it is mad, of pleasure, what use is it? Verse 3, I searched my, with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I wanted to know what the purpose of life was, and so what I did was, I started just saying, listen, if you want it, get it. You're the richest man alive. You might as well get it. It's not going to hurt you. And it ended up hurting him. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, had slaves who were born in my house. 
I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Solomon decided that he would use the physical things, buildings. He would use houses. He would use farms to to try to answer the questions of, of life. What am I here for? And eventually, we'll talk about this in just a second, but eventually he gets to the point where he realizes what he's here for. And the reason why he's here is is to do just that. The reason why Solomon was here was to build houses, was to have joy in his life and so forth. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. But in chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, he says that, that the buildings, the physical things did not answer the questions. It didn't give him satisfaction. The church says, well, we have a nice building, but we're kind of, you know, I said a few weeks ago that y'all are very predictable, that we are very predictable. Did you know that if you give me, are you ready? There's three things that you have to give me, and I can tell you how many people will be at church services. Are you ready? What's the weather like? Is it rainy or cold? If that, that's going to knock down at least 10%. Is it rainy or cold? Is it a holiday? Is there a major sporting event the day before? If I have those three things, I can tell you within two or three people how many people will be sitting in this church building on Sunday morning. I guarantee, test me, I promise I can do it. As I did it this morning, I said, well, it's raining. There was no sporting events yesterday, but, you know, it's, it's kind of springtime and people are starting to get antsy for school to be out. And, and it also is going to be thundering and lightning and, and thunderstorming. That was before we knew that the weather was going to be not as bad as we thought it was going to be. And I said, we'll have about 55 to 60. And guess what? While we were getting ready for worship this morning, I was counting y'all, not to take Will and William and Ray's job, but maybe I help them out. There are 58 people here. So there'll be 55 to 60 people. And I knocked it right on the head. We are so predictable. You know what also is predictable? Church starts growing, and if everyone comes, y'all have been here when when it isn't raining, and it isn't a a sports day, and it isn't a holiday, and you know what happens, right? It gets pretty tough to find a seat in here, other than the the first two rows, because those are the splash zone, apparently. I promise I'm not going to spit on you or anything, but for whatever reason, no one ever sits on these front two rows. But it gets pretty tough to get a, a, a seat, and so churches say, well, we need a new building. And then they, they build a building, but they don't just build a building that they need. They build one that they think they're going to need in 15 years. And then you have the situation that happened at my very first preaching assignment. It was early March 2009. I had been a Christian for about three weeks. And a little church down the road from Jacksonville called our college minister and said, Is there any man that is in the college group that can come and fill in for us? Because we don't have a preacher this Sunday. And so he picked me, and I went, and I was, you don't understand how nervous I was to begin with, but then I pull up to the church building, and it is five times the size of this one. There is a balcony, the lower floor sits like 15 million people, it looks like, 
the, church, the, the stage, whatever you want to call this thing, was at least this high. I was standing about 15 feet above anyone else in the auditorium. We had a great crowd that morning. First two rows had about seven people on them. Because we want buildings like Solomon. I'm going to answer my problems with buildings. And we end up hurting ourselves more than helping. You see, the early church met in houses and local areas and wherever. Churches in Tanzania, if the building gets torn down, they're just going to meet right there. In fact, in the picture that I was mentioning that, that Wes can show you, there is a woman who is sitting on a, on a pew, a bench. It looks like a, like a park bench, but not the fancy park benches we have in Columbus. It's just the old school, you know, like my grandma had at her dinner table because she was too cheap to buy a good bench or a good chair. You know what I'm talking about? No back, no nothing. She's sitting there and there's a little pulpit there and there's rubble all around her and they're getting ready for worship service because there's no building left. The early Christians did not have buildings like this. Look, they're counting now. Tell me if I'm right. I promise you I am. All right, so the early church did not have buildings like this. What they had was something eminently more important. The word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Anytime you read the word church, or at least the vast majority of the times you read the word church in the New Testament, it comes from the Greek word ekklesia. It is a compound word. You've heard this before if you're a member of the body of Christ. Ek means out of. Klesia is calling. So ekklesia is the called out ones. Okay? These are the people who have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, as Paul would write. Then, the English word Church doesn't sound like ecclesia, right? And we don't translate it the called out ones. Why? Well, it's because in the 1600s, there was a man who was pretty popular. His name was James. He had a lot of money. And he had a desire to have his own Bible translation. He was the king of England. You, you know King James, right? And so he translated the King James Bible. But legend has it, now this is just legend, but legend has it, King James was also a Mason, a Freemason. And we can talk about the ramifications of Freemasonry on the church, which is horrible and it, it, it has killed parts of early Christianity and we're fighting to restore that on a daily basis. But nonetheless, he was a Freemason and so he decided he wanted the word church translated certain way. In fact, there are a couple words that happen in the New Testament like that. For instance, the word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo. It means to be immersed, but you never find the word immersion in the New Testament in any English translation because they all come back to the King James Version, and King James did not believe that baptism only came from immersion, and so he said, we're going to transliterate it. We're going to take baptizo and change it into English and we get baptized and then you can determine what baptized means to you. If you believe it's sprinkling, that's fine. If not, that's fine too. Well, he did the same thing with the word church. It comes from the old English word kirke, which means one of two things, either a circle, which is a Freemason imagery, or it also means the thing that belongs to God. So kirke means the circle that belongs to God. 
the house of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. If I don't come, I've written to you so that you may know how to, how to act in the church, the house of God. And so we have this word, church. We translate the word ecclesia with it. It never, ever, ever means this thing that we're sitting under right now. It means the called out ones, the circle that belongs to God, the household of God. It means a group of people gathered together for one reason or another. In the book of Acts, you find the word ecclesia talking about a bunch of heathens, a bunch of non-Christians, non-God-following people called the ecclesia. Why? Because they were called out from the droves to, to scream about Christianity. It doesn't just mean that it's called out by God. It means it's called out by anyone. If I gather a couple of you after services and I, I call you know, Michael and Mike and I call Jim and, and for whatever reason we're, we're going to go to dinner tonight. And so I call them into my office so that we can figure out a time that we're going to leave and go eat dinner tonight. Then that gathering is called the ecclesia, people who have been called out. But in the New Testament, it always refers to the people of God who have been called out. It never refers to a building. So what's the point of this building? If, if it's not commanded by God, which it's not, here's the word kirke, by the way, it's not commanded by God, it's not even innately authorized by God. I mean, just think about it. Do you find a verse in the New Testament where Christians had a building that they pooled their money together to purchase so that they could have worship services there? No. We find houses who are owned by, which are owned by other Christians. We find public meeting areas. A few hundred years later, we find a house that was donated most likely to the church. But you never find the, the, the express authorization of owning a church building. And we're supposed to be Christians who are doing everything by the word and by the authority of Jesus Christ, Colossians 3.17. So why do we have this building? Here's the reason. Here's the reason. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Do you not know that they are God's temple, that you are God's temple, and that God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We, the church, the body, is the temple of the living God. And when we gather together, Hebrews 10 says that we do it so that we can encourage one another. And we need somewhere to do that. Maybe we meet in houses. There are churches all over the world today that are part of the body of Christ that are going to be meeting in houses. Either they've already met or they will be meeting shortly. Maybe it's in a public area. 2015, we gathered down on Woodruff Park downtown Columbus, and had a worship service. That was the church. That was the ecclesia. That was the gathering together of Christians for the purpose of worship. Maybe we have the funds, we have the means to purchase a building like this, a beautiful building where we can sit and y'all can be comfortable and I can be sweating and we can hear the pit-pat of 
rain outside and know that we're never going to get wet until you realize that the roof of this building is like six inches away from that cedar. If the shingles ever, I just don't understand how this is built. Anyways, maybe we have the funds to purchase a building. But then comes the question, what happens 2,000 years later when we're in the situation where Christians come and sit in buildings just like this one all over the world and don't do anything? What happens when the church building becomes the houses that Solomon built back in Ecclesiastes in his reign as the king of Judah and or king of Israel, and it becomes hevel. It becomes worthless. It becomes like a, a wind that is just, it's just used to try to fill some hole. If a church has a nice building, then man, that building, that church is a thriving church. If you go to a church that you see, I mean, we, we judge, we judge the faithfulness of people in the eyes of God by the building that they meet in. I've done it, you've done it, all of us have. And all of us probably will at one point or another. You've seen the churches that meet my favorite church in the world, other than Warm Springs Road, okay, asterisk, is the Jacksonville Church of Christ. I went there this past week um, with a couple of my friends. Wes went with us, and, and I was reminiscing of college and and being a member there, and we sat back, and you know, I've changed a little bit since college. There's something attached now that wasn't attached then to my face. And so I just walk in, and I sat down in the back pew and started singing, and it was worship time that night, and members that I recognized started walking in, and they didn't recognize me, and they walked up, and they said, hi, it's nice to have you tonight. Um, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Columbus, Georgia. Oh, that's great. What's your name? Lee Snow. Oh, wait, you used to go to church here, didn't you? Yes, I did. And then we'd reminisce about the time. I was just wanting to see who would recognize me. That building is 5,000 times bigger than this one. It looks like you're going to church in, you know, the Astrodome or something. But does the size of that church building or the size of our church building or the size of blank Church of Christ down the road that meets in a small little area that, that can only fit 20 or 30 people determine the faithfulness of the people sitting inside the building? The answer is no. You see, the building is a tool for God. In fact, I just want to point out a few things in the book of Ecclesiastes. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. Here's Solomon's decision of what is hevel. What, what's the purpose of hevel? What's the purpose of this unpredictable vanity that is in the world? There is nothing better, verse 24, for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Doesn't that sound kind of hedonistic? That the, the only purpose of human, humanity's existence is to just have a good life. Except, this also I saw. Is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat and have any enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. 
But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. At that comes, all that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Do whatever, do whatever pleases you. You are a person who has been gifted the, the, the image of God. You've been created in the image of God. You've been put on this earth for, for a purpose. And here's your purpose. Just do whatever feels good. But know that all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Over and over again, some, some six or seven times in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, I did all these things. I tried to fulfill myself with, with pleasure. And then I found that it was worthless. But then I found that if I fulfill myself with pleasure, it isn't worthless when I consider who gave me the privilege of having the things, having the money, having the buildings, having the houses, having the, the joy and the, the fellowship with friends and the happiness who, who allows me to live on this earth? God. And Solomon says, when I realized that, I had joy in vanity. Because I realized that it wasn't just vain if I use it for a purpose. And the purpose is to remember God. Now here's the thing. Here's my question for you. And then I'll, I'll leave it to you and you decide what you want to do with it. Do we use our church building? As a means to judge our own faithfulness? Or do we use it for a tool so that we can serve God? And if this church building's gone, then we find somewhere else. You know, it's not, it's not out of the picture. If you don't know, this church building has been destroyed one time. It was burnt. I've seen pictures from where my office is now that was scaffolding. There was nothing there because it burnt out, but of the roof being rebuilt. This is completely gone. Everything is completely black in here because it burnt. Do you know what happened to the Christians when they were here and the church building burnt? There was a pool shop across the street. And did you know that the Warm Springs Road Church of Christ became the pool shop Church of Christ until our building was rebuilt? We didn't call it the pool shop, Church of Christ, but I think we should have. Um, you see, it's not out of the picture that this building goes away. But then the question is, does our church cease to be a church family because we don't have a nice building anymore? No. Never will unless we decide that we no longer want to serve God together. This building doesn't define us. Your house doesn't define you. Your cars don't define you. Your possessions don't define you. Your farms, if you have a farm, doesn't define you. And that's the purpose of Ecclesiastes. He says, I realized, eventually, it, I, I got it through my head, that what I was trying to do was answer my questions with things, with money, with possessions, with buildings, with fellowship and relationships and so forth. And I was trying to validate myself with Things. And let me, just, let me just be totally honest with you here, okay? Preachers do it all the time. We, we validate ourselves by our buildings. 
We validate ourselves by how, how many people we have in the seats on Sundays. And Solomon said, I realized that that didn't validate me. What did validate me was what I did with what I was able to build, what I was able to possess, what I was able to do and to have. If we use this church building as a thing to just come in, sit down, and go on Sundays, and we don't use it to serve God, we don't use it to worship God, or to invite other people to come and to hear the word of God or to worship God themselves, if we don't use this building for the betterment of the church, what we've done is exactly what Solomon was doing. But it just doesn't just go for church buildings. It can go for our entire lives. It can go for our houses and our possessions outside this church building. If we validate ourselves by the car that we have or the house that we own or the house that we rent or the house that we're borrowing for right now or the, the neighborhood we live in, we validate ourselves by those things, then they've become hevel. But if we use them for the betterment of ourselves and the betterment of other people and the building up of our faith and other people's faith and the building up of the church, then we've, we've realized what, what Solomon was talking about. It, it is joy to have the vain things when you use the vain things so that they're not vain anymore. It's the same with life. Over and over, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Life is vanity. It, life itself, the ability to live is vain. It's fleeting, it's unuseful, it's pointless. It's, we should just get rid of it and die. Not if you use it for the betterment of yourselves and the others. Not if you take it in and realize that what you've been given is not just pleasure. It's a responsibility. This morning, it was raining. And Dalton said, can I take one of the umbrellas next door, the umbrellas that we have out in the foyer for everybody to use? He said, can I take one of the umbrellas so that I don't get wet? And I said, sure, if you use it to help someone else come back so that they don't get wet on the way back. And he said, but... I don't want to have a job. And I said, then you don't want to have an umbrella. It's, it's, it's the little things. If we use the things we've been given, the things we've been allowed to use for the helping of others, then they're not vain anymore. They've fulfilled their purpose and we've fulfilled our purpose. If you need to become a Christian this morning, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you and let us know while we do that.